Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, big guest for me, the legendary vocalist of the legendary, so it's double legendary, Gang of Four, John King, is here today to discuss... Uh, just art in general. We have a really fun conversation. This is, I'm really excited for you to hear this one. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother, who is also the show producer and the guest booker for this podcast here. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do for this show. And he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling everyone you know about it. Just letting everyone know uh, that you enjoy this podcast that we do twice a week now. I guess we're doing pretty consistently twice a week. Uh, you can also head over to the platform you listen to it on and rate it and subscribe to it. Uh, or you can order patreon.com slash turn out a punk. And thank you to everyone that does that. And supports the show that way. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vance who, uh, you know, said, do the show. Just don't do it in your own pocket. And they helped me do that. And I really appreciate that. And I long for the day that we can return to the House of Vans and I can, uh, you know, travel and do live turn out of punks with people again. Oh. But when I could travel, I actually went to uh, Los Angeles with Flood Magazine and did a series of videos called Punk as Fuck. You can view them over at floodmagazine.com and check them out. And uh, yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some fun stuff there. It's me wandering around Los Angeles talking about punk with uh, a bunch of people that, uh, you know, people, uh, heroes and friends. And yeah, I, and now you get to watch them. I'm, I'm so happy these things are finally coming out. And uh, that's that. Oh, Fucked Up has a new song, Year of the Horse. You know, Chapter 1 is is out. Chapter 2 will be coming very shortly. And then, you know, we go from there. It's, uh, I'm pretty proud of this song. You know, like, it's it's definitely the uh, the the magna opus of this band. It's, a, it's, it's like an hour and a half long song. How ridiculous is that? That's pretentious. That is truly pretentious. Well... On to today's show and a band that I think uh, we will uh, pass the buck on for giving us these heady artistic aspirations to. Uh, today on the show, John King from the band Gang of Four. Gang of Four are, of course, a legendary punk band. Yep, that's what I'm saying. They're a punk band. I don't I don't use that post word around here some, too often. Uh, they're a punk band that uh, really changed the sound of the genre. And this is a, a really amazing band fun conversation about art and, and the creation of music and, oh man, I, I really love getting a chance to talk to John. Like I want to kind of go on, but I don't really want to spoil it because it's an interesting one. It, it really, it, we, you know, ah, anyway, I'm not going to ramble on. So, uh, I think that's it on my end. Uh, sit back, relax and enjoy John King on Turned Out a Punk. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Well, as I was just telling you off air briefly, you are a unbelievably massive influence, not just on myself, obviously, but but all of music. It's funny, I was listening to just sort of a playlist of current UK punk bands, and it, it really kind of hit me that, you know, more than the Clash, more than the Sex Pistols, more than any of them, you guys are really the sonic 
forebearers for everything that's kind of happening in in you know sort of the broadly termed punk scene in the UK right now, like and, and also in America too. So it's it's amazing the impact your band continues to have to this day. Well, you're very kind. I mean, I I think um, thinking back to you know you mentioned again when we were off air, you know about the encounters with punk, but when um, when uh, we started off. I um, I think uh, what, what I really found really enjoyable about British punk rock was uh, it sounded like Black Sabbath, but with really radical lyrics on it. Mm. Uh, you know, like the Sex Pistols. You know, I think um, uh, God Save the Queen is a fantastic hard rock song, but it's kind of mid-paced and it's grungy and it's really enjoyable and it's great. I loved it at the time, and and the Clash, you know, were very. Um, it, it's the, the the music was you know there was a great vibe about it but but off the actual music bit of it wasn't really radical if you know what I mean I mean I I uh, I, uh, I you know I was a massive fan of the Clash but um, you know I remember feeling a, a bit disappointed at the time when they did a sort of a reggae song you know what I mean you know doing a, a song in someone else's genre yeah. I didn't I didn't kind of like that so I didn't want us to be like a genre band, you know, uh, and, and try and make something up that didn't sound like other other things. I'm not being very clear about that, am I? No, no, you're, you're actually making perfect sense on that. But it's funny how ultimately you now create kind of the overarching punk genre, you know, in a lot of ways. Like you create a yeah. subsect of punk rock. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a funny thing. I think that, you know, all, all musicians look – for places to inspire them, and, and you know, uh, I, we were the same. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I was astounded constantly by uh, listening to Jimi Hendrix. You know what he could get a guitar to do, um, and but but I think more than that was uh, American electric blues. You know, Chicago blues. You know, you used to think you'd have uh, someone. With very little accompaniment and with very uh, uh, non-existent access to sort of technology or to or to money, they could do something that that that, that talked sonically and kind of um, lyrically about what what life is like, you know. And uh, and I think that the the thing about I think. Um, the great punk rock music that's happening now, or, the, or whatever it might be called, is, is an attempt to sort of try and talk about life as it is now. You know, trying to trying to be authentic. It's it's it's, it's hard to be authentic in a world of um, you know uh, of uh, studio effects and and you know I don't know voice modulators and things like that. You know, I don't know. I think that's one of the things that I've always found so fascinating about Gang of Four is because it's it's not just the art in the songs you're creating, but it's like it's art in the the structure of the band and almost like the art of exposing sort of the the infrastructure of what a band is. You know, like going back to the first single um, yeah. where, you, where you're kind of like breaking down the recording process. Like it just felt like everything about it was uh, was part of the statement. Yeah, um, well, I mean, when we started, we were a lot, a lot. I think everybody else. We we played in John. We played a, a bit like Doctor Feelgood. You know, we oh we, amazing. We, 
we wrote sort of uh, verse, bridge, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, keychain, chorus out kind of things. In fact, Matador released one of the uh, early tracks, uh, for, uh, I don't know whether it was a gag or not, the Elevator, which is kind of like those songs that we did before we became Gang of Four. Obviously, we were called Gang, Gang of Four, but before we found our sound, and we, we were very lucky uh, to live in um, the north of England, which was completely ignored by the music press. You know, the music press was all based around London. Uh, no one ever came to the shows, we were never reviewed. So we played all the time, but we never, ever got any exposure. Mm. To, and, and, and we moved through that period of learning how to be in a band and what the band was going to look like and how you're going to be on a stage. And, even, and then Anthrax, which you reference on there, I remember me and, me and Andy used to have um, rooms next to each other in this really shitty house. And uh, we, we used to write together and he would – he had an acoustic guitar, and I had, and I owned one of those terrible cassette player recorders. And we, we sort of, I was really interested in, um, uh, pretty much obsessed with, with the films. I used to see like four or five movies a week, mm. and um, we were really obsessed at that time with the Goddard's film number two, which had a split screen on it and it had subtitles on it. And sometimes the subtitles is what people were saying. Sometimes there were descriptions of things that were happening off, off camera, you know. And yeah. it was really complicated. And uh, I thought, that'd be great to write a song like that. And so we, um, we actually wrote it down on a bit of paper. Uh, I said, we'll have a slab of feedback, and then we'll have over a fantastic groove, and then I'll sing. I had my lyrics written about this, basically like waking up with a hangover and feeling alienated. And then Andy would would situationally improvise. You know, he, his words would always be different live, which they were until the, until the recording happened. That the lyrics were always different. They often describe yeah. being in the room or the equipment we were using. And uh, when we went into the rehearsal room, David and Hugo, we said, "Here, here's the idea of this song." And they worked on it, and they came up with this 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 riff that was kind of um, it, it was like. Pre-sampling rhythm section. It didn't change at all. I mean, didn't, there's, there are no changes in the, in the rhythm section, but it sounded a bit like Can, and it sounded a bit like um, the Meters, you know. Or, mm. And and then Andy to carry this stupendous sort of, you know, uh, wall of noise because obviously, like every band, we love Velvet Underground and we love Hendrix. We love Hendrix and the Velvet Underground. And so it's trying to make a that sort of flavour on the guitar, and then this thing happened. And, and at that point, after we'd we'd written it, we had to go, "Wow, that we realised that that was what the band was all about." And so all that other stuff, we just dumped as fast as we could dump it. And uh, that's that's why tracks like Elevator never made it onto entertainment because we could we started going, "All oh, right, let's write a song like uh, like Ether." I'll do one thing, and Andy, we do a call and response thing, which of course is, is a, obviously a, a thing that happens in blues music a lot. But you know, I would sing this thing about whatever it was, and he would then respond to it. But the only key was you couldn't sing about the same thing. You know, it wasn't about a relationship; it had to be about a thing. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the book. 
Have you seen Have you seen the book that comes with a box set? No, I can't wait to get this box set. I'm, I'm chopping at the bit to get one. Well, they've got the, the unique thing. I'm using the word unique correctly about the book. Is it's the first time ever that all the lyrics, the proper lyrics, are in one place. And they've never been published before, and the ones online are often wrong. Mm-hmm. But on each song, there's a I mentioned Ether. There's the the lyrics are printed. Then there's a little story about writing it, and then there's a little fact, or maybe not a little fact. There's a fact, and um, the last line of uh, Ether was what started me off, which was uh, there may be oil under rock all, which is a very mysterious line. If you don't know that rock all is a, it's the size of a, a small house in the middle of the Atlantic which was the last bit of rock claimed by the British Empire in the 1960s (laughs) by landing a a couple of soldiers on it to live on this ship, guano-caked rock. Mm -hmm. And it gave them ownership of the um, oil under the sea. And it it, it was so sort of like funny and weird. Um, uh, And that was linked at the same time to the government being found guilty of torture in Northern Ireland and it was kind of playing off these ideas so yeah well, you brought up like the French New Wave and I think you know that's always something that's kind of fascinating about this whole sort of Fenton mythical kind of Fenton scene that you're coming out of where it's it's almost like that same sort of approach but to rock music where you're like you're bringing up all these sort of disparate things that you guys are into and you're bringing them into it and also at the same time you know, I think breaking down kind of like, you know, that fourth wall on, and kind of like also explaining how it's done and showing how it's done and presenting it in a completely unique and new way. Like it, it just always seems to kind of echo the stories you hear about Calle de Cinema and that kind of whole world to me, at least. Yeah. And, and, and something at the time, I mean, we were, we were um, fine art students, you know, and um, mm. we were at the most, then the most politically radical um, art department in the world. And um, so we spent, we spent time thinking about, you know, semiology and structuralism and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, what things mean, you know, and it was kind of uh, asking a simple question like that about anything. So what does it, what does something mean? Takes you off in all sorts of little um, adventures of trying to, work things out and there was a there was an art movement called fluxus in um, i think it was in denmark and they were photographers and they wanted to make honest photographs and that was their word uh, and so they said well photographs or photography is kind of dishonest well not kind of is dishonest because people would like crop photographs you know they'd zoom in on a bit of the picture like we can all do on photoshop Mm-hmm. And uh, and say this is what the picture's about, and all the rest of it is lost. And so they used to just print the picture, including all of in the old the days when there was film, you, even with a, the socket, you know, the spools of the picture on it, to show that they hadn't cropped it. And and I, and, uh, and I was thinking that was that was a really cool thing for music. What if we could do music where you knew that we weren't uh, faking any of it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I mean, we took it to extremes, which were mostly or nearly always unsuccessful. Like um, when we were recording entertainment, uh, we, I remember having – it was actually closer to a row than a, than a discussion 
<laughs> about whether we should use any reverb. And um, uh, of course, you know, it's the default setting of all singers, you know, put a bit of reverb on and it sounds a bit better. And I thought, well, do we want to sound better? Uh, uh, and uh, so there's discussion about what better was and what reverb was. And we then felt that the machine that was the reverb unit might be what was wrong rather than reverb. So we rigged up this thing where we put a, 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 an SM58 microphone down the, uh, the can in the, in the, in the toilet bowl, mm-hmm. dangled it just above the water line, and then fed, <laughs> fed the vocal through in a speaker into the toilet and then picked up the reverberation in the toilet pan. and uh it did actually sound shit i mean and uh so we 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 agreed that we could use the reverb unit but we didn't we 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 banned all the um most of the outboard effects we thought were fake Mm -hmm. and so that's why the record is so dry uh it's it's incredibly dry because we didn't want it to, to be um dishonest yeah, but it's funny because that record, you know, being on a major label, being called that's entertainment. It's almost like it's almost like Boonwell with Land Without Bread, where you're just you're you're almost exposing how corrupt the form is in itself. Like, you know, in it, you know, obviously you're presenting as honest a thing as possible. But like you're saying about a photograph, like there's something so inherently dishonest about music as a form yeah. of art. You know? Yeah. Well, it, one of the things that I think is is a challenge. You know, for if you're in a new band or starting, I'm trying to trying to find your own sound. Is is of course it's, it's very easy for us all to make a song that sounds like something we've already heard. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that makes it particularly difficult is having something that's so brilliant given away for nothing, like Garage Band. I mean, you know, I'm talking to you now on my Mac, and there's Garage Band sitting there, and and you just you can open it up, and there's fantastic. Um, drum loops and bass loops from it sounds superb, yeah. and um, you know you sit thinking, oh, oh man, you know you if you want to do something that flips off from that, you know you, it's if you're using the same loop from you know Funky Drummer or whatever it is or or, or one of the the great meters tracks that've been flipped, you know um, you um, you're going to sound like other stuff. I mean, I, this came to mind recently. We were incredibly flattered. I was incredibly flattered that uh, one of my favourite uh, hip-hop bands, you run the Jewels, mm-hmm. has done a song using uh, uh, Naturals, the, the riff from Naturals Not In It under their hip-hop track. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting because trying to find something that, that isn't corny even under a hip-hop track is quite... Is quite uh, I, I was quite amazed by that that they would do it and obviously very flattered because they're so cool well it's almost like that cycle's continuing like you're saying like obviously you're referencing the meters and you're referencing kraut rock and now there's like this whole new genre that's that's referencing you and which is ultimately referencing this stuff so it's it's a i don't know it's just like an ever going kind of continuum it feels like yeah 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 it's um you know we all all uh, creative people always sort of like pay, spend a lot of time listening and to other people's work and looking at other, what other people are doing. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, I can say, I, I feel um, that it, it's, it's been a, a, you know, 
fantastic. You know, that, that people have been turned on by that stuff, just as we were turned on by the other stuff ourselves. Yeah. You referenced making love and anthrax that, you know, it was written out on a sheet of paper. And I've always, I think it's actually, I read it and ripped it up, start again, that you guys yeah. never jammed. It was all very kind of like pen to like, everything was brought in. Is it was, is that true? Or is that just kind of legend? No, that's, that's not true. I mean, uh, Andy and I never ever did any work outside the rehearsal room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I, I shared a flat with uh, Mark White and Andy Corrigan, who became the who were the two singers of the Mekons, and yeah, Andy yeah. his girlfriend. Andy didn't even have a guitar in his apartment, um, so no, it all happened in the rehearsal room. I, I think that the probably, you know, it was a thought that if, if we We'd often start off with a kind of an agenda. I always wrote all my lyrics off site mm-hmm. and brought the lyrics in, but that was after after we'd be improvising over typically Hugo and Dave come out with a pattern of some kind. And and um the uh so I, I, I don't know. I mean we weren't no, I think it's funny what the word jam means, you know. Um <laughs> I uh, the very first bass player we had for only two shows. Uh, a guy called Dave Wolfson, and um, he was a much better musician than any of us were. This is right at the very beginning, mm-hmm. and and he used to jam, and uh, we weren't a jam band, no. I mean, in that, uh, uh, I mean, you know, and he was a brilliant guitarist, but he was not a technical guitarist, so jamming was not something that sort of fitted in to what we did. So and, and if ever there was a jam, it often would lurch into cliches. So I think what we uh, trying to sort of both agree and disagree kind of with the thing about we're not a jam. We never jammed, but we did all the work in the in the studio. And so if we if we started uh, improvising and lurching off towards you know a rock and roll track or a punk rock track or a funk track, whatever. Then we'd, we'd have, we sort of would stop it right there and say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And typically that meant saying something like, okay, this song, we're not allowed to have any key changes. And uh, a song like, um, you know, To Hell With Poverty, you know, you say, right, we're not going to have any uh, anything other than drops in it. <laughs> it's going to be a riff and dropouts, you know, or, or, like, or damaged goods. You know, there, there aren't, there aren't um, those sort of key changes in some of those songs, which are part of the rules of the song. Mm. Um, you know, like Anthrax, the rule of the song was it just goes on and on and on. It's slab, slab, of, slab of feedback, doubled up voices, slab of feedback, doubled up voices, feedback end. You know, that, um, uh, that was all kind of written in a bit of pencil. Um, so I think having rules to write a song is really good. You know, I, I used to have... Um, I used to have a series of banned words that I wouldn't use. Uh, uh, so, and I did only one song survived, for example, into entertainment, which has got a metaphor in it, which is um, glass. And it still annoys me now that I let that one get through. You know, so I'm so, I was bored as a cat. And that's the only song I thought, oh no, how did I let a metaphor sneak in? <laughs> I didn't like that. So what were some of the other banned words on this list? Like it was just like a list of words or like it's like sort of like, I guess, literary devices you don't want to use or, or language yeah, devices? Yeah. 
yeah, adjectives, metaphors, mm-hmm. uh, things that sounded sort of also from a subject matter perspective. I mean, I think that the um, it, it's incredibly easy to default to songs about um, unhappy relationships, you know, mm-hmm. um, and um, how things went wrong and how things maybe they've gone right again. And, and yet, certainly where I was coming from was to think about what, a, you know, what was a relationship anyway. And so songs like, say, Contract, uh, you know, is this sort of nagging feeling in the back of your mind is, are, are you actors in some really uh, miserable theatre? Mm. Uh, and, you know, is everything... Are you just a, like a function of of your class and your and your ethnicity and your background and where you're born? And is it all a sort of grim charade, and uh, or, or not, or is it a happy charade? So uh, yeah, so the words tended to be about um, uh, cliched things, but I used yeah. to also write a whole series of subjects like. Um, that, that I might write about, and I found one the other day, I listed them, uh, and we might put them up on the line at some point, you know, it was, it was things like um, the idea of Switzerland, was a, <laughs> I think, oh, that, that's a good idea for a song. Uh, <laughs> uh, or, uh, or, you know, one, one, laundromat, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, things like that. Yeah. And, you know, so, like, actually, you know, you could see how, the idea of Switzerland, could without that would be a lousy name for a song. But the the idea, the notion of a place where everything is incredibly homogeneous and everybody is obsessed with material comfort and um, everything is perfect and tedious. I mean, uh, uh, is uh, is interesting. Yeah. You know, you sold me. You sold, the, the concept alone had me humming this song in my head somehow. Yeah, that's a free gift to your listeners, you know, <laughs> write a song about the idea of Switzerland. I mean, if you live in, uh, you know, I know that I, I was talking to um, someone from an Egyptian and saying the idea of Switzerland and greenness mm-hmm. in a desert country is, of course, like heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I've been to Switzerland quite a lot over the years, and, and, and it's really boring. I mean, it's really, really boring. Uh, oh. <laughs> I think anyone who's been in a touring band can very much relate to this sort of the conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's, it's amazing how, like, everything you're describing, like writing a song about being in a laundromat, like, you know, and, and this gets thrown around so much about bands that are ultimately rock bands, but you guys are the ultimate anti-rock band. Like a mm. legit anti-rock band, like from subject matter to to presentation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know whether that did us any commercial favors. <laughs> it certainly didn't, I think. But um, I, I think artistically, you know, the the thing we were talking about earlier on is, is you have to ask yourself, somewhat, why am I in a band? You know, why mm. am I doing this? Performing is a fantastic vibe. You, you know, cause you've been in a band. Be, just being on a stage is tremendous. Yes. Playing is, is tremendous and being with other people. And the experience is, is, is a trip. 
But then there's a sort of point saying, well, am I in it because I like that experience? And I think of, um, think of the archetypal band, i.e. the band. You know, they toured for, they, were, they toured for, been on the road since they were like 16, 17, until they met Dylan. Uh, and they were the, what they were called the Hawks or something. Mm-hmm. And then when they, Dylan had them in his place in the in, um, Big Pink, and they suddenly discovered who they were. They weren't a band, they were the band. And uh, they wrote about America. They wrote about, you know, and it's, it's astounding, really, you know, that you, know, you can do things and eventually you work up while you're doing it. Yeah. And then at that point, everything kind of falls into place. Yeah, like I think what you're describing, like, I don't know, I just look at the band as being this art statement. And in fact, like even, you know, here you are, like you're saying, you're not doing yourself any favors commercially, but like here you are at the most commercial point, you know, up until this early part of your band where you're at top of the pops, going to play on top of the pops and you refuse to compromise your lyrics because, you know, even though you are playing with being a pop band, like ultimately it's about the integrity of your artistic statement or what was that the motivation? Yeah, well, it, it was. I mean, the we were we were pretty good at being difficult. I mean, when we presented uh, entertainment to EMI, who had not come into the studio at all, I mean, to give them credit, they knew that, that we were un, unbiddable. So no one made any suggestions of any kind about what we might or might not do. Didn't and we wouldn't even we refused to even play them any of the demos. But when we finished the album, they thought that was the demo because <laughs> it was so dry and they were a bit taken aback. But having listened to it, they then wanted to release as the very first single, Essence Rare, which is a fantastic song. Yeah. But we, we said, no, that's the first thing it comes out. It's, it's, it's one of the songs that's more, uh, more, more, more genre-like. And uh, so... so um, we we said we don't want that to come out, and we insisted on it being tourist. EMI were actually really pissed off about that because they saw, I think they were right, that Essence was a, actually a commercial, much more commercial track because it had a chorus to it and mm. uh, and a bridge and that kind of thing. Um, and of course, uh, at home is a tourist. It's none of the above, really. And um, but when. When we went on to Top of the Pots, which was for, you, you know, because you're from Canada, but the, the, it was probably the most influential music program in the world for breaking singles. You know, I mean, American, American bands would love to be on Top of the Pots in, in the UK because it almost guaranteed a top 10 position. Yeah, various so that, times they would show it here on TV even. Yeah, and it had a, but it had a very strange uh, uh, agreement with the Musicians' Union in, in those days. And that if you you were guaranteed to go on the show if you were rising up the charts, so there was no. They tried to remove um, uh, payola by saying, "Here are the rules, and the rules are if you're if you've entered the top thirty and you're rising up the charts, you get to go on the show." So, uh, to the astonishment of EMI, tourists charted in the top thirty, and we got invited on. But then, the you you were obliged to re-record the song. You had like they'd phone you on a Tuesday, say we're going to record it on the on the uh, Thursday, 
Uh, so you've got to go into re-record the track that's in the charts in a, as if you'd never done it before. Um, this is a musicians' union thing who in those days used to really represent orchestras. And um, we, we, all that used to happen was you used to run off a, a, a duplicate uh, quarter-inch tape and pretend to re-record it and give them the original one. They didn't like the word, the rubbers you hide. And they didn't like the word rubbers. And I'd use that word because it's an American slang word for a condom. Mm -hmm. The British people didn't use at that time. Uh, uh, pe people in Britain used to say Johnny's was the slang word. Or, or old, old people would call them French letters. Um, uh, or the French would call it le cap anglais, wouldn't they? Um, and... Um, so they said, it's a family show. You can't have that on. And we, we just had this row about essence rare. So we said, oh, well, let's, let's just drop in that one word. So, and also, uh, uh, going back to that thing of trying to be authentic, didn't do it very well. I mean, it did del deliberately didn't do it very well. Mm -hmm. So it went blah, 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 blah. And, and the uh, packets you hide. So I dropped in the word packets. Uh, and it was obvious that, there had been some other word there and then something else was dropped on the top of it. It was like a really bad, deliberately bad splice. So when we came to do the show, the guy said, what's this? You know, you've used the word packets. We wanted you to use a word like rubbish. And because the censorship was, they wanted it to, to sound like it hadn't been censored. Yeah. We wanted it to sound like it had been censored. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we had a big round. We just told them to, to, to go fuck themselves. And, um, and, we, and that was that. It, <laughs> it's, uh, we were the, we've been the most banned band, I think, in, in Britain because uh, we, a few years later we were banned for the song I Love a Man in a Uniform. That was banned in the UK. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, you know, and I think even even with that, like even if you had changed that to packets, like the fact that you had made it obvious almost goes to the thesis of the band. Like once again, exposing all the machinations yeah. of what it is to be a band. Yeah, I, th I thought that was. Uh, we actually enjoyed that. We thought it was great if we could go <laughs> on to the biggest show in uh, uh, pop show in, in Europe and have our song there, and then obviously have had to change the things for the media. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, you, I, we were very excited. We thought we'd been very clever. But, of course, they they were determined to get us off the show. I mean, we yeah. did. We were pretty difficult. But at that point, I wasn't going to change it so that it was nonsense. I mean, people don't hide rubbish in their top left pockets. And the number one single that week was You Can Ring My Bell, uh, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, uh, sort of pathetic wings request for a happy ending you know? yeah, exactly <laughs> uh well you know once again you had to make it less real you know if you if you buried in that metaphor on your band list you would have been able to get on the top of that uh <laughs> the charts yeah. that week yeah yeah yes yeah. so if it had been metaphor driven it would have been on the disco floor you're trying to you're trying to make a score you also make it rhyme um, again on the on the band list sometimes it was don't use any rhymes at all um, uh, That's awesome. I'd um, I'd um, I'd forgotten about some of this, and on uh, again in the book, some of the lyrics are. I mean, they 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 don't look like they don't look like songs because there's uh, 
Uh, I suppose they are songs. Earlier, you mentioned being into Doctor Feelgood. What was some of the, like the first music that really grabbed you? The, the first one that really grabbed me. Um, I, I'm only so, so quick to answer that because I was asked the same question by a friend the other day. It was was um, uh, Highway 61 revisited. Mm. Um, the, the track. I was um, I was only 11. I was a little boy, and I'd gone up to secondary school, you know, and. Uh, in the art department then, uh, so I was this sort of like timid little 11-year-old, and there were 17 and 18-year-old boys, and they had a record player in the art department, and they would play music. Mm. And, and I, I come from a, a poor working-class family. My, my father was an electrician, and we didn't have a – we didn't own a, a record player. And we, you know uh, – so Hector's a record player was quite exotic to me. Yeah. And um, on came this track, which I'd never heard anything like it, which was, you know, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. And it was like a bomb going off. I was just, I thought, I'm having some of that. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that uh, this was a thing. Yeah. I was, I was, you know, I think old people, you know, uh, are, are super patronising to the imagination, the creativity of, of really young people. I was just, I was just knocked out. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that, that this was, this existed in the world. I'd never heard anything like it. I loved it every tiny moment of it. Mm. Um, I still do. I mean, I, I st- it's still got some of the most thrilling uh, lyrics in it. And, of course... He doesn't use metaphors, but he just like mixes up quote from the Bible and you know to mix up the idea of Abraham being uh, attempting to slaughter his child to honor God and Highway 61, uh, uh, where everyone goes to dump their junk. It was an astounding thing. Um, uh, and again, as a songwriting thing, this is totally unoriginal. The best way to start song is have two two things that are mutually incompatible. Try and sort of put them in the same box. Uh, uh, so, like Dylan would, Dylan would talk about you know the, the, this iconic road in the United States, which was the road for you know that kind of represented freedom and, and Americanness from one coast to another, and then this biblical story of of uh, slaughter and death and redemption. I mean, a fantastic mixture. Hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. So where did you kind of go from hearing that? Like you mentioned not having access to a record player at home. Like how were you hearing music at that point, mainly? Well, I, that, I was quite good at drawing and stuff. I entered a competition for a, what was a, actually a marathon bar, which became Snickers. It was a, there was a cartoon competition. <laughs> and I, I drew a cartoon and I won enough money to buy a record player. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that was that, and then um, uh, uh, you know, I I, I would straight into because I I would hear this stuff at school because it wasn't really good in the UK. There wasn't good um, uh, pop radio at all or anything like that. So I would hear these sort of uh, you know bands like I don't know, the the Meters and and reggae, of course, was so powerful. So. Uh, and, and then, the, then it was really 
Hendrix and the band were the two bands that I loved when I was like 14 years old. And then Velvet Underground. Um, my, my, my friend's dad was a record reviewer for a newspaper and he actually had one of the review copies of Velvet Underground and Nico, you know, with the peel off banana yeah, cover. Yeah, the peel banana, whoa. <laughs> we actually had the peel banana cover. And, and I remember us listening to it because his dad thought it was terrible rubbish. <laughs> and, uh, and listening to, you know, heroin, you know, and, uh, and that, I thought, this, this, this is the nuts. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that, that row that John Cale made, um, it's incredible. Incredible. Mm-hmm. And so what about like the, you know, I guess the, the proto-punk kind of glam stuff that was happening like at the time, like was that hitting you at all? Like bands like Slade and all the bands that, you know, like I guess almost like just the loud kind of rock and roll stuff that was also happening at that time. Well, I liked um, uh, who didn't like uh, Bowie. I, 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 Bowie was just uh, wonderful. And I liked all that dressing up. And um, the Sweet were, were a great band. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they, you know, Ballroom Blitz. And that um, those guys who used to write those hits, uh, um, songwriters, but the sweet was fantastic. Slate had some pretty good, you know, stomping, stomping tracks. And there was all the, the dressing up that everybody, like Roxy Music, did. You know, um, uh, it, it never personally appealed to me the dressing up side of it all because mm-hmm. I was, I was, uh, I've always have been a motorcyclist, you know, so I. I kind, of, I kind of, to me, I just like the Ramones look was like quintessentially the correct way to <laughs> go about it. I thought as a teenager, so yeah. I was, I had my, I had my, uh, you know, Trump five hundred and a leather jacket, and that's <laughs> so. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I guess what about like sort of that proto, I guess for lack of a better term, biker music that was happening, like like Hawkwind and Pink Fairies yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Were you into that stuff at all? Absolutely. Well. Uh, Hugo and I often reminisce because we might have been, I think, at the same gig. But there's a very small town in Kent, which is about, which is relatively close to where I grew up, called Tunbridge. And I saw Hawkwind play there when I, I think I was like 16 or 17. Oh, man. And they were, playing, they were playing In Search of Space. I don't know if you know the album. Yes, absolutely. And, that's one, and, and that particular track I still listen to. It's, it's like a prototypical garage thing. You go, and it's got um, Lenny doing that thing, and everybody had taken acid, uh, uh, me included. And um, it, it, I, I don't, there's, there's a bit, it's very sort of um, spinal tap like. It's a bit on, uh, I think, Search of Space, we said. On the on the sleeve of it, it says something like, um, "Once you listen to this album, another thousand babies will have been born." <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's very Nigel Tufnell. But you know, they they just went on. I think they. I don't know how long they played for. It seemed like forever. But you know, in search of space, it just went on and on, on and on and on, and uh, it was just they were they were great. Mm. You mentioned earlier, like, Dr. Feelgood, and also you mentioned, like, the fact that, you know, northern music wasn't getting sort of any attention and love. And and I, I don't know, once again, from a Canadian miles away, like, to me, Dr. Feelgood almost feels like the quintessential northern rock band, like, prior to punk rock. I know you're, you're absolutely on point. I mean, they were, uh, they were straight out, uncomplicated, 
working class type thing. And and um, I, I must have seen them live half a dozen times. And the guitar style was, you know, for a long time, an absolute straightforward clone of, of Wilco Johnson's. You know? mm-hmm. Wilco used to play without a plectrum. He used to sort of almost like flick the strings. And he played that really choppy style. He played with the all four fingers across the, across the strings. If you see film on YouTube, you, you, I know you've already seen that, but he'd like chop across the strings and he'd sort of flick them and button them. And he was obviously a um, big fan of um, amphetamines. And he had, so he had this sort of stony, uh, frosty glare. Yeah, the stare. Uh, he had the stare. And, um, and then there was Wilk, and then there was Lee Brello, who always wore this really stinky... I think at one point it was originally a quite a cream-coloured suit, but, but he was obviously really he exuded alcohol, and they were just so rugged, and uh, and and there was nothing going on in the songs. Um, the, the, they weren't about much, you know. But I, I you know, that um, I think it's the album called "Down by the Jetty." Mm. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic record of. Of, of de- almost like deprivation, I suppose. But I don't know if that's really a record of deprivation. But it's like if you've got nothing else, you've got to make your own entertainment, and that's what it is. It's going out there and just just making a row, and and uh, that it was it was they were great to to watch. Mixed in with that was was really we liked dancing, you know, and, and mm-hmm. so reggae music was the the tro- Trojan records. Think of box sets, you know. The uh, the Trojan story was, you know, uh, I, I practically wore out the Trojan story. You know, you know, songs like Double Barrel by Dave and Ansel Collins, you know, uh, or even I Met you know, by Desmond Decker, which is a bigger hit worldwide. But the brilliance of Jamaican music uh, and then, and then uh, James Brown, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can't go wrong with the... Anything by James Brown, uh, if you want to have a good good time, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, what was it like when you got to Leeds? Like, was it was it you know like it, it obviously has a bit of a reputation. Um, you know, in my experience, definitely there's been some some pretty hard times there. Like, what was your your first kind of experiences when you got there? Well, um, I went up with. Um, a schoolmate called. I was at school with Kevin Lysett, Andy Gill, Mark White, and Tom Greenhouse, and me and Andy fought Gang of Four, and the other three fought in the Mekons. Mm-hmm. And it was also the same year there was a documentary filmmaker, Adam Curtis, and Paul Greengrass, the movie maker. So we were all in the same class. Uh, there was also like Delta Five, and then there's like all the. It's amazing how much stuff came out of that like window in that scene. Yeah, well, we went. We went up. So I went up with 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 uh, Kevin and, and to, to do this fine art course. And in the second year, Mark and Andy and Tom Greenhouse joined in. And we had got really immersed in, in films and took over the University Film Society, which also meant you could go into the local cinemas and the polytechnic uh, things for nothing. And mm. Hugo, we met, he was got really into um, working in the entertainments thing. And Leeds was... Uh, at that point, an A-list venue. It's, it's quite hard to 
convey how important Leeds was. I mean, the, the Who's Live at Leeds was recorded in the university refectory to an yeah. audience of about 900. Led Zeppelin played there. Paul McCartney played there. Genesis played there. I saw Bob Marley playing at Leeds University in the in a hall with 900 people. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so it was it was an A-list venue at a time when there were very few well-equipped places in, in Britain. So we could see all these bands for nothing, mm. uh, and uh, so saw at least I'd say at least uh, two significant bands a week, uh, uh, sometimes more, and probably for, like I said, three or four or five movies a week, <laughs> and. Uh, and then we went to this tiny little pub called the Fenton, which is where the lefties and punks and gays and uh, uh, difficult, difficult, uh, generally other difficult people would go to. And it, we'd all sit there, all sort of huddled together, uh, uh, having, having a lot of fun and um, talking about culture a lot of the time. And then... It led it instantly, saying, well, you're talking about stuff is, is fine, but you, really what you need to do is do something, don't you? And um, we had incredible good fortune because the local hippie food collective called Sumo, which is now quite a big um, uh, uh, vegetarian and vegan brand, had an empty warehouse, uh, which they said we could use to rehearse in. And so... And we said, claimed that we had a band, and we, we, we then were given access to a rehearsal room. So that's, that led to us having somewhere and the Mekons, and we were a collective. And then Delta Five were friends of ours. So they were women friends of ours. And then, I mean, Mark Armand, for example, uh, soft cell, Mark, Mark used to sit in one corner of the pub, which is, I'm going to say corner of the pub, the room we sat in was about, probably about, uh, six metres by five metres. I mean, it wasn't very big. And um, we'd all sit there and, and you know, Mark asked if he could do a support show to us, <laughs> which consisted of him being whipped by um, uh, a woman friend of his, um, which is quite a good support act. <laughs> uh, but, and again, our good fortune is no one was really interested in putting us on. So we had to promote our own shows and we didn't have any money. So we had to, we made our own, we built our own PA system. We bought, uh, we, um, we got a load of old, uh, uh, we, we found a wardrobe on a, on a, on a rubbish tip and some wood that was in the back of a dumpster. And uh, Andy Corrigan, who came the singer of the Mekons was our sound engineer. And he'd, he had a book about how to build a PA. And yeah. so we bought the driver units from an army surplus place in Leeds in this waste. Leeds was terrible. It was all falling to pieces. A real, massive unemployment, terrible uh, place to be. And we got these driver units and we built a sort of like a uh, South London reggae sound system. And, and it was the, uh, the funny thing about it was it, it was so big, the first version, we couldn't get it out of the door. It was really spinal tap. We built it too big to get out of the door. Um, so we had to cut it up again and, and rebuild it. <laughs> what venue were you guys playing out of Leeds? Were you playing the upstairs in the Fenton? Or? We, we, no, we, ne we never played in the – the Fenton didn't have a, a venue. There was a place called uh, – it's called the F Club. Oh, yeah, yeah. But we – the very first show we did 
we um, there was a building called the Corn Exchange, uh, mm-hmm. which is now a kind of historic building, but then it was a derelict old thing, and and we were able to rent the ground floor of that for you know ten pounds or something, and uh, put a show on in this basically in a derelict building, um, and. Uh, then we just endlessly we'd phone out any band that was coming through town we'd phone and say can we or Dave would do this he was did all the work can you know, can we come and support you and that's how we met the Buzzcocks um, uh, uh, and partly the reason we built the PA or mostly the reason we built the PA is because bands then used to charge you the support band to use their PA <laughs> so you know they come along and you'd, you'd be getting you know Ten pounds, and this, then the main band will ask you for fifteen pounds to play. Um, oh, you had to pay to get on, type thing. Yeah, ah. yeah. So, so that and for, later on, when we became a headline act, we were determined that anyone who supported us, you know, got properly paid and looked after. We, we never, we, we, it was a pretty horrible system. The Buzzcocks were fantastic though, and um, you know, and they became very good friends, and we sort go across to Manchester quite a lot. And again, Manchester was ignored. I mean, we were supported in Manchester by a band that was called Warsaw, which later which turned the name swiftly into Joy Division after that. Yeah. Um, uh, no one no one reviewed any of these acts until we put out the first EP on Fast Records, which the Mekons had a track on it, and the... Um, uh, Heaven Seven, not Heaven Seventeen, you know, um, whatever it was, Phil Oakey, mm. um, did their thing. And so when we sort of emerged, it, it, I, I think it was quite a shock to, I don't know, the music establishment in London that, that, that all these peculiar sounding acts would come along, you know. Um, uh, uh, with those weird songs like Being Boiled, you know. and, and yeah. It's it's amazing too how like it's it's just like it's you know the next wave of bands it's all from you know Leeds or Manchester or it's just just like it felt like you know the North almost takes over at a certain point with post punk like the or whatever it's now called post punk punk rock I guess yeah I, I think and it, the great uh, the the difficulty of being somewhere like uh, London or New York or Toronto or or stuff is it's really expensive to live. Yeah, I mean, it's really expensive to live, and uh, it's quite difficult, if not impossible, to be in a band without having a job. Um, and um, because it was so poverty stricken, I mean, I, uh, again, I'm not trying to boost the, the, the book too much, but, but I wrote a mini essay in how what a shit show Britain was, you know, in the late 1970s. It was really a disaster, but to be artistically to be in a place where everything is going on massive unemployment massive inflation massive interest rates fascist walk in the streets civil war uh, blah 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 that's really great creatively it's yeah. not great for any of the people involved but you know and it, it it's not great to comment on if you're um, uh, entitled and, and wealthy and, and you know looking down your nose at people but if you're in the middle of it all um you get involved in things that are just natural. Like we were right in the middle of uh, the rocket racism, you know. So that that, that sort of 
that movement came out of people that were like us, you know, I mean, like Black Lives Matter in America, you know, I mean, it's, it's it, you know, there's, there's things that historically unavoidable and you, when we, you have to decide what side you're on. You mentioned that first gig, and there's that story once again. I think in in Rip It Up and Start Again, where uh, you had to deal with Nazis at the first gig, right? Well, it was it was pretty much all the time. I mean, I I say all the time, I'm exaggerating, but it, the Leeds was a great centre of a great centre. It was a centre of um, of fascism. I mean, in the in the 1930s, before the Second World War, Leeds had the largest uh, assembly of uh, fascist black shirts ever in Britain. Um, tens of thousands of them. And there was um, uh, a thing called the British movement then and the National Front. So we were very, we were very active in being on the back of uh, trucks, you know, playing music on demonstrations. And, and, and inevitably, some of these people came along to, not all the time, came along to shows to make trouble. So we kind of got used to a little bit of liveliness. Yeah. Well, it's it's also, that's the birth leads of, of sort of the next wave of this bullshit, like fascist stuff, where yeah. that you have that band, The Dentists, forming there, and you have the birth of sort of like Nazi, like yeah. like oh, skinhead music, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to label it. Like, But that's where it's born as well, at the same time almost. Yes, that's right. You know, and um, I remember... Remember Jimmy Percy? He, I think um, Sham Sham was it Sham sixty nine? Yep, Sham sixty nine. Uh, he was a very thoughtful and bright bloke, but he, and he was very upset that his music became co opted by really uh, uh, extremist people mm-hmm. um, because it it was he was celebrating working class culture, you know, um, like songs like "Hurry Up, Harry, Come On," you know. Um, Come on, come on! It, it was like a late latter day punk rock Slade, and um, and then that thing. There were, well, it was never really very successful, but it, but it was uh, definitely uh, took off a bit in that in that area because Leeds was so economically deprived. You know, I mean, there were like twenty one in every five adult males was out of work. You know, it was it was. Uh, the cues to the um, unemployment exchange were incredible. Uh, uh, it, it, it was it was a difficult place. Ideal, really. I mean, that part, the Fenton, you know, on one night was attacked by a, quite a large posse of of uh, fascists, and there's an amazing brawl broke out, like one like a Wild West scene, and uh, it was it was. Uh, Chairs being thrown around and bottles and all this kind of stuff because they were they wanted to take out everybody who went to this pub, you know. And yeah. um, yeah. it's it's amazing, you know, talking about the Fenton because like when I when my band went over there, that was like really the base of operations for us. Every time we went to the UK, <laughs> we played the Fenton, and there's yeah. no acknowledgement of all the amazing history in this building. <laughs> like we go over yeah. there, and it wasn't until you know reading about it later, I'm like. How do they not have a free a photo? <laughs> Any reference to the fact that this place is like? Yeah, I mean, Andy and I, uh, some years ago, we, the Guardian newspaper asked us if we would do an interview, but they wanted to interview us in the Fenton. Mm-hmm. So we, that's fantastic. We come up here, and we all went. We went up on the train with the journalists to the Fenton, and I don't think it had been redecorated 
in the, in the 20 years since we'd last been there. But um, it was interesting. You know, you think there's there's, there's uh, Soft Cell, there's Gang mm-hmm. 4, there's Amicons, there was Delta 5, there was Frank Tobias, Fad Gadget, there was um, Pill, you know. <laughs> it, it was a, a lot of bands clustered in that little back room. Oh, it's incredible. Like it's, 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 you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not definitely the most deep knowledge on music history, but I, I, it's hard to think of another venue or another, not even a venue, like another hangout spot that produced so many significant bands. No, that's right. I mean, the, the nearest I can think of it was the actual venue was CBGB's. Yeah. And, yeah. That's, yeah. And they definitely make acknowledgement of their history there. <laughs> they built yeah. a, a cottage industry on that. Yeah. I mean, and, um, you know, having gone from, well, for me, I've got a research grant to go to New York. Uh, I was writing about pop artist Jasper Johns. And, and Andy, like I said, was the year below me, asked if he could come along. So we, so we went along and stayed with a friend of a friend called Mary Harron. Mary Harron was the, then a, a journalist for New York Punk magazine. She mm-hmm. went to Mark's place. So we went to CBGB's every night in uh, 1976. And every single person in the room, I think, was in an unknown band, like when the unknown bands became Patti Smith Group and uh, Richard Hell and the Voidoids and uh, Television and Talking Heads and the Ramones. And this room, you know, tiny little place that smelled like a dumpster. And uh, uh, that's. That's the thing that always comes up when people talk about CBGBs, especially, you know, like the first era of CBGBs, that the odor. The odor was apparently something else. Oh, it was really smelly. And, uh, but it was, it's, uh, I think the thing is that, again, going back to what triggers creativity, it's some, you know, asking that question, why am I doing it? And and then, then you sort of work out what the rules are for your engagement. But, Something that's, I think, not I think, something that is affecting every single person in the in the world at the moment is moving to a screen-based uh, interaction with other people. You, you and I are having really just a free phone conversation at the moment, aren't we? But, uh, <laughs> but not free. It's, it's a it's a it's like a phone conversation. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if you're trying to sort of emotionally trigger up people and write original thrilling stuff. Staring at the screen is not very handy. And I don't think anyone who'd been in CBGBs or the Fenton would have done much if instead of sitting there sort of trying to squeeze a space to put your pint glass down or, or, or see someone on the stage, you know, and then say, I like this, I don't like that. It's not the same as watching a, a streaming concert. It's, you know, it's, it's not the same as, as jamming with someone somewhere else mm. although that's what we've all got to do but it's it's not got that emotional and uh, uh, creative drive yeah it's not it's not fully you know centrally immersive in that sort of like the same way you're describing like the odor at cbgbs and like like there's is it, it's like a one di- it's or, sorry i guess two-dimensional interaction with someone because they're on a flat screen and there's no uh there's no tactile. There's nothing like to to actually trigger all these other senses that come into play. Yeah, and, and you have the, of course, the technology intermediaries change everything. I mean, like yeah. one of the things that's, you know, it's sometimes when someone's playing guitar, you love the sound of the strings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, um, 
some of those, um, you know, the re early recordings of Robert Johnson, and uh, he's doing, you know, Crossroads and, and things like that. You can you can hear him sort of banging this obviously pretty rackety guitar with this, and it, you can almost hear the shake of the neck of it, and uh, it, it it means something. You know, you think this is this isn't uh, a rehearsal. This is this is it, and once it's gone, it's it's over. And the but the, the more mediated stuff is the less you can sort of find that um uh, originality or whatever it is that you want to do yeah well this has been incredible john and and i want you to know if you ever want to come back on this show please know you are yeah. always welcome um well, but before i let you go can i ask you one more question sure how did you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre well I would say it's uh, it, it's actually CBGBs. I would say that um, I am um, before going to New York. It, it, it had been um, I'd seen I'd seen them um, I'd seen the New York Dolls and I like their sort of scruffiness, you know, and, and the Heartbreakers and um, uh, obviously Feel Good. And the um, the Stranglers, you know those bands, mm -hmm. but but they were quite, I think, musically conservative. And I think you know going to New York and seeing um, uh, like Richard Hell, I mean, I think he was he certainly defined a lot of the look and feel of what it's like to be in a punk rock group. You know that that that, that way of being on a stage, which was very massively imitated, and the Voidoids were. Pretty, um, they were pretty amazing. But the band, I think, I saw the most with the Ramones, of course. You know, I mean, I, 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 I think I, I can't remember how many times I saw the Ramones. Quite, quite a lot. And it, what they were again, think about rule books. You know, they they had their very very firm boundaries that meant that whatever they did it was like a jewel, and it was these great slabs of of sound and. and Eliminating complexity, but so that was. I think it's, yeah, it's probably the Ramones. Yeah. Well, this has been incredible, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time. No, it, it's been a pleasure, and um, and uh, hopefully, maybe in twenty twenty two, we might <laughs> be able to come over and play a few shows somewhere. But who knows? Thank you, John, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, John will be back for part two at some point in the future. But until then, you know, uh, check out this Matador box set that they've just put out, 77 to 81. And it is an incredible four CD box set. And it's four LPs as well. And I think there's also a demo tape that John referred to where you can kind of hear their older Dr. Feelgood sounding stuff, which my gosh. How cool is that? You know, like you sit down with the with the dude from Gang of Four and you end up talking about dropping acid and watching Hawkwind. That's why I love doing this podcast and fighting Nazis. <laughs> what fuck? Oh, uh, that was awesome. Okay, yeah, check out this box set. It is it is it is a monster thing. It looks amazing. I'm looking at it right now. I've I've not seen a copy in person, but uh, from the photos, you know, I know I I, I can. I can vouch for the fact that there are some uh, legit record nerds of the highest order working at Matador, so they've done right by this thing. Anyway, pick it up. 
where you pick up your records. All right. Coming up in just a few days, we're going to keep the legends coming around here. We got we got one of the one of the one of the all-time greats. There's no other way to put it. Coming up on this week on the show later on, Daryl Jennifer from The Bad Brains is here. Also Stealth um, Soul Brains. He's played. He's you know been in some other projects, but we talk a lot about the Bad Brains. This is a this is a, a an amazing episode. Holy, yeah, this is awesome. Get ready. Uh, I'm I'm psyched for everyone to hear this. I've been sitting on this one for a little bit, so uh, I've I've been trying to you know bite my tongue about how fun this is. But yeah, it's a good time. We talk about the vile tones, you know. <laughs> oh man. All right. I love doing this podcast, you know, like this is the kind of stuff I love doing because I just like, I just love sitting down with someone that I've listened to their records for years, you know, like in, in, especially most of these recent cases for years, I've listened to these people's records and there's all these questions that I've had rattling around in my brain. And then I can finally like exercise those demons and, uh, ask them all these questions. You know, it's, it's very cathartic, you know, it's, uh, all right, uh, you know, that, we'll lead right in with this time. Go in there and make your own culture because it feels good to do this stuff, you know, and it doesn't have to be a podcast. It can be a podcast. I know a lot of people are doing podcasts. It's very it's very easy to do a podcast. It's the easiest medium to do, <laughs> express yourself with. But you could also, like, you know, start a, start a, a, a zine. Uh, I love reading magazines. Write a book, put out a record, you know, start a label. This is all taken from Tony Erba. He would do the speech. Start a band. Start a fanzine. Start a label. You know, but just just put yourself out there. Paint a picture. You know, you don't have to show anyone. Just just do it for yourself. It'll help. It helps. Uh, speaking of helping, uh, meditate too. It, 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 that is also something I've come to really recently. All right. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids, and we need to help trans people protect themselves. Uh, go out there, get informed, you know, read up about what people are dealing with out there. Um, you know, if you, if you can donate money to organizations and causes that are, are doing good work, if you can volunteer your time and yourself and, and get involved, be, 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 be involved, but definitely smash fascism, you know, Nazis suck. That is a hundred percent, uh, that, that is still. Uh, that's a hundred percent that, um, what else? Uh, sign your organ donor cards, please, because it could help someone else, uh, when you, when you don't need those organs anymore. Um, and, uh, it's, it definitely has helped. I, I can talk from personal experience, family members that have been helped by organ donation, you know, also by the same token, donate blood. If you're able to donate blood, um, you know, people need that too. I'm, I'm, these are no set of rules. I'm not telling you how to live your life, but uh, I'm just laying down a few simple. Uh, just had to go into a punk quote there, but uh, no, these are just things that uh, you know I think about right around in my head. Uh, and I think that's it. I think uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, I will uh, see you next episode. Thank you for listening, as always. I really appreciate everyone sitting here and spending time with me and just. Just uh, zoning out. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing when you listen to this podcast, 
you know, just just keep doing it. Uh, you know, thank you. All right, that's it. I love you. See you next episode. Daryl Jennifer, fuck. That's awesome. All right. Bye.